Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is your host, Mike Hancox, and today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment. If you want to learn more about Island Press or their urban resilience project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash capital URP. Today, we're going to take a closer look at three major innovations occurring simultaneously in the transportation arena, autonomous vehicles, shared vehicle services, and electric vehicles. Our guest today is Dr. Daniel Sperling, the founding director of the Institute of Transportation Studies at the University of California, Davis, and a nationally recognized transportation expert. In addition to his work at the Institute for Transportation Studies, Professor Sperling serves on the California Air Resources Board is the co-director of the National Center for Sustainable Transportation, and is a past chair of the Transportation Research Board of the National Academies. Dr. Sperling has written more than 200 technical papers and 13 books. His latest book, published by Island Press, is Three Revolutions, Steering Automated, Shared, and Electric Vehicles to a Better Future. Dr. Sperling, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Mike. This is a pleasure. So, Dr. Sperling, the, we see a lot in the press about automated vehicles, and, and services like Uber and Lyft have you know, certainly revolutionized taxi services in urban areas. And we see a lot in the press about, about Tesla. But I'm wondering how real the revolution is and how fast it's moving. Now, if, if for example, we, we look at electric vehicles, now they've been on the scene to some extent for 20-plus years and while they seem to be getting a lot more attention right now, they still represent maybe like 1% of the light vehicles on the road. So I'm wondering, is there really a revolution occurring with, for example, electric vehicles? And when should we expect to see significant market penetration? Well, those are great questions. You know, I have to start out by saying that I've been working in the transportation field for several decades. And quite frankly, it's been boring. Not much has happened. There's been very little innovation. We've gone through our cars are functionally the same they've always been. Our roads are functionally the same. Transit cars are a little higher quality. And we'll talk in a moment about them being electric, becoming electric. But in the past, the transportation system has essentially seen almost no system-wide or, or broad innovations. And now it's so exciting for those of us in the research field because we love change. It's scary for those in local governments and in a lot of industries because they need to be making big decisions. But the question is, are these revolutions, how much and to what extent are these revolutions really taking place and how far, how fast? And I'd have to say that, so of the three, the automation is probably the easiest answer because the automation, we have a lot of automation in our cars already and we can talk about that. But full automation is still a little ways away. So it's not here yet. The sharing economy with Uber and Lyft has had a 
significant impact in, in our denser cities, but not much beyond that yet. And the electric vehicles is one that is on its way, let's say. I think you would say that with electrification of vehicles, it's definitely going to happen. The auto industry is committed to it. The policymakers around the world are committed to it. And really, it's the pace at which it's going to happen. And it's going to vary quite a bit from one area to another. Just very quickly, at one extreme is Norway, where they have 40% of new cars sold being electric already. And maybe next is China, where it's not a huge percentage, but in terms of numbers, it's far more than what we've seen in the US for electric vehicles. So it depends where you live, but we're on that path. It really is happening. And there's almost no chance we'll be backing off from that. Your crystal ball, you, you look at this stuff more than probably any you know most other people. When are we looking 10 years out, 20 years out that we'll see a significant portion of the cars on the road be electric? Well, that's a tough question because electric vehicles unlike these other two revolutions, are really being pulled by policy. And so it's a question of, are we going to maintain our commitment to strong policy? And when I say we, you know, I'm in California, but there's the US, there's Europe, there's China, there's Japan, there's the world. And so it's going to vary dramatically from one place to another. And it's going to depend a lot on policy. And it's also consumers. Consumers in some places seem to be much more conservative and cautious than others. And so in California, consumers are a little more open to change and innovation. And so, and we have the policy arena where more supportive. So we're at 5% market penetration for battery electric vehicles, plug-in hybrid vehicles, and hydrogen cars. And by the way, I drive a hydrogen car. And so we're at 5%. We have a goal in California policy and my regulatory, with my regulatory hat on, we have a requirement of about at least 10% by 2025. And we're looking at 40% for 2030. So that gives you a sense. So that's California and a number of other states in the US use the same policy as California. So that gives you a sense of where it's likely to be in some places. Gotcha. And, and California is such a big marketplace that it will drive the industry to some degree, right? So that'll, that'll have impacts even in places that don't have the same policy arena as California. And that's right. But China, even more so, because China has even more aggressive policies now being put in place. And they seem even more committed to electric vehicles than the US or California. Yeah, I'd like to come back to that. And, and what are the kind of the the economic implications of, of China's kind of taking the lead on this. But policy is is driving, will drive electric vehicles. What about autonomous vehicles and vehicle sharing? What what would the, the forces that determine how fast those transitions occur? In those cases, policy is slowing them down. And there's big debates about, do you want to quash or inhibit innovation? You know, many people, policymakers don't want to be in that position, but in fact, they are. And so, for instance, on automation, there's big debate in Congress now and in Washington about whether we should be allowing the automakers to start putting large numbers of their automated vehicles on the road. They've already given some permission for testing, but to do it in larger numbers. And there's a lot of concern that it's, they're not quite ready for prime time. They're not quite ready for to be on the roads mixed with bicyclists and pedestrians and so on. So that's a debate. I guess a very quick assessment of the automated vehicles. And by the way, I use the expression automated vehicles, not 
autonomous. The popular expression is autonomous. It was popularized by Google in 2010 when they unveiled the concept or they promoted the concept. And that was because Google is part of that Silicon Valley hubris where they just think they can do whatever they want and they'll focus on it. They don't care what anyone else is doing. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that is the Silicon Valley culture. But these vehicles will not be autonomous. Autonomous means it operates independently. These vehicles are going to be very connected. They're going to be connected to other vehicles. They're going to be connected to all kinds of sensors in the, in the traffic lights, along the roadside, on the curbs, because they're going to be part, they're going to be sensing all the time. They have cameras and sensors and laser, and they're going to be figuring out what's going on around them all the time. So I use the word automated. It's probably a losing battle to change the popular use of language, but I'm trying. (laughs) Do versus Google. It doesn't seem like a fair match. David and Goliath, right? (laughs) So that's going to happen. The way it's going to unfold is that these vehicles, as they become pretty much driverless, meaning you don't need to have a person sitting in the driver's seat and licensed. I think within a few years, we're going to start seeing some of them. They'll be used mostly by companies like Lyft and Uber because the attraction, the benefits to that service is so great, but they can do it in a very constrained way because these vehicles will not be allowed to just drive anywhere. So they will will be what we call geofenced, that they can only work in an area digitally defined. But Uber and Lyft can just say, okay, I'm going to geofence this area, going to map the hell out of it so that we know where all the curbs are and all the hazards and so on. And we're going to let that vehicle operate in that area. And so if someone calls up in that area, or hits the app in that area, and their destination is within that geofenced area, then they will dispatch an automated car. But that's going to be pretty limited, and it's going to take many years before those areas expand out. So we're seeing we have some time to get this right. It's going to happen soon, but we do have some time, but we do need to get started right away. The Uber and Lyft story is a very different one. I mean, they want automation. They're just thirsting for it because the major cost of providing the service is the, is the driver. And quite frankly, there is, if you combine the shared economy with automation and electrification, which is the theme of my book, then the potential benefits in terms of sustainability, equity, environment, economics are just massive. Yes. So why don't we talk about that for a minute? And just in terms of the notion, I think, of your book is that these things can produce a better future for the majority of people. But on the other hand, they might not. And it depends on what type of decisions and policies we make now. So paint the better picture for us and then tell us you know, what could go wrong. Yes. Thanks for starting with the better picture. I'm an optimistic type person. And you have to be if you want to change the world, right? You have to think about how do you make it better? So this is an opportunity to make it better. And the reason, the way this plays out is that basically we want to increase mobility and accessibility. We want more people to be able to access different destinations. We want low-income, elderly people, disabled people to be able to get better accessibility. And it's really, there's an equity issue in here. So if we can provide this, an automated car, so the automated car will be operated in a, what we call a mobility service by a mobility service provider, by a company. It could be Uber, could be Lyft, could be Ford Motor Company, could even be your local transit operator. 
could be your local government, probably not be government, at least in the US. And so what you have is a potential for these vehicles that will be operated in an automated way. And so the cost will be very low. It'll be much less costly than for owning and driving a car today. And that's because this car will operate 100,000 miles a year. It'll operate 18, 20 hours a day. Our cars now, we only use our cars 5% of the time. We drive them about 10 to 15,000 miles. It is one of the most underutilized capital assets we have in our society, in our economy. So what we're going to do is operate over 100,000 miles, operate all day. We spread the costs out over the whole vehicle. No driver, so you don't have those costs. And you will have much lower environmental impact because these will be electric and, and it makes sense for them to be electric. So they'll have, they'll last longer. They'll be have lower energy costs, lower maintenance. So you end up with a system where there's less vehicle use, less traffic congestion, less need for infrastructure, less parking, less cost to travelers, less cost to cities and government, more access for people. So the split between haves and have-nots is shrunk quite a bit. And the environment, and we do a lot for the environment in terms of air pollution and greenhouse gases. So it really is, it has the potential to be, create a very much better transportation system, more sustainable cities, and better lifestyle. So that's the good news, or that's the potentially good news. <laughs> so what's the, uh, what's the downside? The downside, it really comes down to one major challenge, and that is, will Americans be willing to share rides? Because that's what we're, we're talking about. Will they be willing to get in a vehicle with someone else and share that ride? And second to that, will they be willing to give up ownership of their own cars? and use these mobility services as a substitute. The reason, and there's a lot of, I mean, we can easily conjure up scenarios and images of why people won't do it. You can go to have an, I go, I speak at a lot of conferences and I always ask people and you hear story after story about how they have their dog in the car. They want to have the freedom and independence that they have a big family, that they leave all their junk in the car and they mess up their car. And so all kinds of reasons why they don't give up and others that don't want to share it. They feel like they're concerned about safety and security in the vehicle. And so we don't need everyone to do it. But the reason why a lot of people will do it is, one, wouldn't you rather be chauffeured? That's what we're talking about. So you have a chauffeur. Okay, in this case, it's a robot, but it's a chauffeured vehicle. You don't have to deal with all the hassles of taking care of a car. You don't have to deal with parking of a car. And it's going to cost you a lot less than it would owning and operating a car. And what you lose is you have to share rides some or most of the time. The trip, the, the actual time in the car might be a little longer because you'll have to go out of your way a little bit, although the total trip time might be very similar. So it's not a done deal. It's not guaranteed. But I think the reason I wrote the book and the reason why I'm so positive about this is that the upside potential is so huge that really for the first time in history, we can make a dramatic improvements in the livability and sustainability of our transportation system. My understanding is that in the real estate market right now, the millennial generation and the baby boom generation are actually both following a similar path in which the demand curve is now for urban and walkable communities. So the acceptance of 
the shared rides sharing service would be much higher in urban areas, I, I would assume, right? Because the inconveniences of owning a car are much greater within an urban area. The costs are, are higher, et cetera. So I think that the I could see market penetration. I could see where there would be a demand for this and, and a pretty significant demand. Even in the maybe more suburban areas, I know for myself and my, and my wife, we might need that one car for the to take the dog and put all our junk in. But on the other hand, we don't need two cars. So we could use the second. Second car could become a ride-sharing service or Uber or whatever. I wonder, I worry a lot about the equity implications of, you know, I think for the average person, for middle-class people, I think there's probably a cost curve that makes sense. I wonder a lot about the implications for folks who don't have as much money. And, you know, for example, I was in New York City recently and using Uber. And um, then you use Uber at rush hour and then they have special demand pricing right? So during the high use hours, the costs are going to go up and the people who have more resources will will get service and have service. And the people who, more working class people who don't have as much flexibility in terms of payment will not get as good a service. What can we do about that? How do we make sure that these innovations are, that benefits are distributed a little more equitably? So first of all, we should not use New York as the case study or the model. There's almost no place that's similar to Manhattan in this country. And I say that because in New York, transit is very effective and very pervasive and very accessible. That's not true hardly anywhere else. So we like to talk about low-income people having access to transit, but the truth is transit serves a very small percentage of even low-income people. And we're not, we're doing a very poor job of providing accessibility to lower-income people. So Starting with that premise, we can, under the scenario I wove, the cost of the of these mobility services would be quite low, much lower than the cost of owning and operating a car. Now, that still can be high for some people. And in those cases, what I would say is we need to transform our transportation finance system. Right now, we heavily subsidize transit. So the cost of owning and the cost of transit service in this country is about $1.25 a passenger mile. Whereas what we're talking about with these mobility services is maybe 10 to 20 cents a passenger mile. Now, passengers don't pay the $1.25. They pay an average of about 25 cents a passenger mile. But we can provide these services even less at lower than the price that what transit does now and much lower than the cost. So we can take that extra cost, all that money we put into subsidizing the low density routes of transit and use it to support people using these other kinds of mobility services. So it's very easy with the modern technology, with apps, you can have it built into your app if you qualify as a low income person that you would pay a lower price for these services. And keep in mind also, when we talk about these mobility services, it's not just like Uber and Lyft with Uber Pool and Lyft Line where you have two people or three people in the car. These can be all more like what we used to call jitney services. And there's come we now call them microbus, microtransit services. So there's Via and Chariot and there's a number of others that use vans and they can provide it service even cheaper. So the modern technology of the apps and the smartphones, and we do have to figure out smartphones, you know, some lower income people don't have smartphones, but there's ways of dealing with it. But all this technology makes it possible to do very low cost service that will be available to all people. 
To what degree is the affordability of these services driven by the fact that there's no labor involved, that there's no drivers? And what are the implications of that in terms of equity across labor markets? Yeah, and that's a good question. So when we talk about these three revolutions, they can apply to both passenger travel and freight. So we are talking about passenger. And on the passenger side, I think that's going to be a very positive story from a labor perspective. I think that what's likely, we haven't done the research on this because it's hard to really be able to quantify this yet, but my hypothesis, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to be right, is that the automation and sharing of passenger services will lead to a large increase, expansion of jobs and of both a whole range of jobs, good jobs and lower quality jobs, but a whole range and a far and a big increase. And the reason for that is nowadays, most of the travel we do is uncompensated personal travel. We drive ourselves, we take care of our cars, we register and so on. And about in the US, about two to 3% of our travel is what I'll call chauffeured. So that means buses, taxis, Uber and Lyft, and so on. It's only two to 3%. What we're talking about is taking that two or 3% and bringing it up to 40, 60, even 80%. And what that means is we're taking all of this activity, which is uncompensated personal activity, and turning it into a commercial activity. Now we're going to have all these companies and businesses providing these services. And so you've got people that run the company, you've got the professional people, the engineers and the accountants, you have the customer care people, you have the people taking care of the cars. So we're going to generate probably a large number of new jobs. And just to make it a little more vivid and bring it to life a little bit, compare it to uh, housekeeping. It used to be also that was all very much personal uncompensated activity. But soon we started mechanizing and automated a lot of the equipment and a lot of the activities in the house, everything from vacuum cleaners, dishwashers, and so on, you know, and all the jobs that came with all that manufacturing. And then we outsourced a lot of the activities. So like a lot of we go out to restaurants to eat, we buy prepared foods from elsewhere. And my wife, who's in the paint business, says even for painting our house, most of that is outsourced. Very few people actually paint their houses anymore. An analogous situation in which we've generated lots and lots more jobs. And the same thing is likely to happen in this case. Fantastic. Unfortunately, we have a limited amount of time, and I could probably talk to you about this for hours. So I'd like to jump to the question about right now, the president is talking about imposing tariffs on steel and aluminum. And I heard someone say yesterday that the president is trying to revive industries of the 19th century, while China is revolutionizing industries of the 21st century. So where are we in terms of electric vehicle production and autonomous vehicles in relation to the rest of the world in terms of developing these and and some kind of world leadership position in terms of the development of these new products? We're probably doing pretty well right now. Most of the companies dealing with the automation technologies are in the United States and a lot of them in California, actually. So the Detroit companies, as well as the European companies, 
car companies are all deathly afraid that the Googles and the Apples of the world are going to take over their business. And then you have Uber and Lyft as well as a service provider that also are California companies, by the way. <laughs> so in terms of the technology, I think we're, the U.S. is very much certainly in a, is in a leadership role. But China is the dark horse here, and it's quickly moving to the front. They have a strategy to pursue both electric vehicles and automation. They're doing electric vehicles because industrial policy, they want to leapfrog the internal combustion engine. They know they can't do, they can't compete with internal combustion engine technology, but they can compete and even dominate with electric vehicles. So they're making a decision to leapfrog the global industry in that way. Number two is their oil imports are huge. They've just passed the United States in oil imports. The bill for that and the security issues with that is huge. And three, not necessarily in that order, is air pollution. They have horrible air pollution in their cities, and they're very committed to dealing with that. Electric vehicles are a good solution to that as well. And then climate change. It's not a number one issue, but it is uh, one of the factors that they consider. And then on the automated vehicles, they've come to understand that automated vehicles is machine learning, artificial intelligence, and that is the future of so much of our economy and our society. And probably the first big, really big application of that in terms of scale is cars. So they are just now making a, a strategic decision to focus on it. So they're going to be become strong competitors. So be, all of this, so I do want to say one more thing, important thing, especially for a lot of the listeners who are local government, local people, all of these things we're talking about here, a lot of the impacts and decisions will be at the local level. And it really is going to be up to our local leaders to be play a leadership role in this. And their job today is to be not just accepting the pooling services that are getting started, Liftline, Uber Pool, Microtransit, but to actually champion them because that is the path to the future. We've got to get more people in the vehicles. And at the local government level is where the greatest opportunity to do, to do that is. Fantastic. So I want to, before we run out of time, I want to put a, give a couple of plugs here. The book is Three Revolutions, Steering Automated, Shared, and Electric Vehicles to a Better Future. And you can buy a copy by going to islandpress.org backslash books backslash three hyphen revolutions. Dr. Sperling will also be speaking at the Yosemite Policymakers Conference, March 15th through the 18th. And you can learn more about that and register for that by going to www.lgc.org backslash Yosemite hyphen policymakers hyphen conference. And Dr. Sperling, where else can folks learn about the work that you do in, at the Institute? So you can go to our website at University of California, the Institute of Transportation Studies, three revs. So if you just type in three revolutions, UC Davis, it'll get you there very easily. And we have a lot of activities. We're creating a whole policy platform to serve local governments, but also to be a forum for exchanging information. This all is happening so quickly that all of us are, are just struggling to keep up with the changes that are happening. And as I said, local governments are on the front line in terms of pricing decisions, curb space, dealing with Uber and Lyft, electric vehicles, charging stations. So we are creating a platform for all of those people to interact. We just held a conference last week. We had 400 people 
from around the country. We'll be doing more events. We're going to be doing workshops in different parts of the country. We have different papers coming out, short policy briefs that are very accessible. And we're doing presentations around the country. I'm what I call the, not a book tour, but a book campaign, because we are trying to inform and educate and help local leaders adopt better policies. Fantastic. Dr. Sperling, thank you so much for being here today. And thank you for the really important work that you do. Well, thank you, Mike. It was a pleasure. And I'm glad you're giving attention to this very important topic. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.